Jarring Cacophony tells you that you're listening to the Power of Three podcast, the Scottish podcast that loves to celebrate Doctor Who in all its forms, whether on TV, audios, books, animations, or anything else. I'm Kenny Smith, as ever, and you join me for another of our Power of Three interview episodes. If you've picked up the latest Doctor Who magazine, available in all good news agents and supermarkets priced £6.99, or unless you've subscribed, of course, then you've probably read the feature Harbouring Ambitions, which talks about pre-production on Doctor Who in 2003 before it returned to our screens. This fascinating insight was written by Paul Hayes, who's the author of the book The Long Game, a clever title, see what they did there, about the period 1996 to 2003. And this is the inside story of how the BBC brought Doctor Who back to our screens. I purchased the book recently and was blown away by just how good it is. It's not just a book about making Doctor Who, but how the BBC made television in general during that period. There's a host of amazing interviewees, and we'll hear more about them shortly when we speak to the author. But don't just take my word for it that this is a good book. If you pop online, you'll see some incredible reviews of the book on Goodreads. Here's a few of them. Simon Heldrich said, So much more than just another making of Doctor Who. This book dives deep into the state of UK TV in the mid-90s and early 21st century and gives a fantastic insight into the workings of the BBC. The book meticulously details every step on the road to revival and goes into the background of the major players. One of the best behind-the-scenes books I've read. If you are a Hoover, you need to read this. Oh, I like it. He says Hoover, not that bloody Hoovian word, because that's not a word. Alex McKenzie says, Sometimes books like these are dry and dull pedantry fests, but this is eminently readable, enjoyable, and feels very timely with the return of Davis, Tranter, and Gardner to Doctor Who. Tim Piracini says, Does exactly what it says in the tin. It's not a book for everyone, given the immense amount of detail it goes into about things that ultimately probably didn't make much difference. But for anyone interested in how UK television works at the decision level, it's exacting the research and a clear, engaging read. Oh, and it will probably help if you're a big Doctor Who fan. Andrew Fox, they said, The long game delves into an underemployed era of Doctor Who, a period when, in the eyes of the public at least, there wasn't very much going on at all. But in fact, the period between the 1996 TV movie and the announcement of the show's return to television as a regular fixture in 2003 is full of untold tales, false starts and what might have been. Information is scant, but author Paul Hayes attempts to piece together what was happening during these years as the idea of the BBC making Doctor Who again began to coalesce in the minds of the people with the power to make it happen. As Gareth said, fans of TV production and the pitfalls and irritations that lead to things not getting made will enjoy this well-researched and colourful account of how Doctor Who eventually came back to our screens in 2005. So there we go, and that's probably enough of an endorsement. But if you haven't bought it already, it's probably a good enough reason to. So enough talk about the book. Let's meet the man behind it now. My name is Paul Hayes. Uh, I'm a lifelong Doctor Who fan. Sounds like I'm in a sort of Alcoholics Anonymous group, doesn't it? I, I'm, my name is Paul Hayes. I'm a lifelong Doctor Who fan from the south of England, now living in Norfolk. Uh, I work as a radio producer for the BBC in my day job and in Doctor Who terms uh, I've written a few pieces for Doctor Who magazine and uh, the book The Long Game which came out uh, in the autumn. Fabulous, well thank you so much for taking the time to come and have a chat with us on The Power of Three. 
Well, thank you very much for asking me. It's it's always very flattering to be asked to do these things because I I'm basically a complete nobody in Doctor Who terms. So the fact that anybody wants to speak to me for their podcast, as a few people have since the long game came out, is is, is immensely flattering and a huge ego boost. So thank you. <laughs> oh, where, where did the idea for the long game come about? Because it's one of those ones you think I was I was a fan. I lived through that period, and like, you just sort of you look back and think, okay, it was the time when. BBC books were going with the previous Doctors and Eighth Doctor. So where did the whole idea for sort of chronicling this period come from? Well, it sort of happened in stages, really. I mean, like you, it was a period I lived through. Um, and it's a period I lived through uh, from quite a young age. I was 12 when the TV movie was on. And then by the time the recommission happened in 2003, I was 19. So it's a, re- a really impressionable part of your life, basically my whole teenage years. So I felt like I absorbed a lot of what was going on quite well. You know, that sort of history and all the kind of landmarks, the milestones along the way really embedded themselves in my consciousness in a way perhaps that hasn't doesn't necessarily happen for other periods of the show, just because it was, you know, such an, such an intense period of fandom when you're a teenager, I think. But the idea for it came, it was back in 2015 I just for fun really I uh, to amuse myself I put together a sort of timeline of the events of that period um, very much inspired by I don't know if you've ever read the first Doctor Handbook by Hal Stamson Walker it's got a great section at the back the production diary which is one of the finest things in Doctor Who non-fiction it, it sort of chronologically lays out all the events from, from uh, the first science fiction report that Eric Mashwitz commissioned in the spring of 62 right through the first Doctor's era and the, the period of that going up to the, the launch of the show is such a fascinating narrative to look at so I wanted to do something like that for the 96 to 03 period sort of setting out how everything happened that narrative of how it went from the TV movie to being recommissioned so I I did a timeline like that obviously I didn't have access to BBC documents like they did for the first Doctor Handbook but there was plenty of interviews documentaries uh, magazine articles all that kind of thing so I laid this out as a timeline as I say purely as a fun thing to do for myself but I put it online and I put the link on a few forums Gallifrey Base and and, and other places and lots of people said how much they liked it and and how they, they found it was really useful and really good and it sort of sparked something off me thinking maybe there could be a book in this so I tried to see if I could sit down and, and write it as a, as a narrative in prose and I had a draft that was about 50,000 words which was a bit short for a proper book and I tried approaching people back in 2015-16 see if I could get some interviews to, to bulk it up with and make it into a proper book but at that time I just couldn't get hold of anyone. It wasn't that people said, no, they didn't want to speak to me. I just I, I just never got replies, really, from most people. I think I got two replies, one from Dan Friedman saying, no, he'd moved on from Doctor Who and didn't want to talk about it, and one from Colin Brake, who was the wonderful Colin Brake, the first person who ever spoke to me for this book. So thanks to Colin Brake. Uh, that's for, for the chapter that's in there about other sci-fi efforts that were going on through those years. Uh, and But it just kind of laid fallow because I never, I never got hold of anyone else. And then in 2020, I guess it was soon after lockdown. I never thought of it as being a lockdown project. But, you know, everyone had their lockdown project because it was always something I'd meant to go back to. And sort of every new year, I would think, I must go back to that Doctor Who book I did because I really think could do something with that and then finally um when lockdown came along i was very fortunate i was able to keep going into work through the lockdown but i did have a bit bit, bit more free time on my hands so i I knuckled down and started approaching these people i guess maybe because a lot of them because tv drama had basically shut down during that period and i guess because they weren't doing so much a lot of people did get back to me this time around and i did get lots of interviews done and uh, so i managed to put a, a a sort of full blooded version of the book together through 2020 into 2021 and uh very fortunate to find a publisher with with, with 10 acre so that's how it happened really with a sort of end there was one clump done in sort of 2015-16 and then a sort of finished it off in 2020-21 and um yeah basically i wrote it because it was a book that i really wanted to read 
uh, but it didn't seem to exist. So I decided to sit down and write it, basically. It's fabulous. I mean, I think you've, you haven't mentioned yet the many names who you've interviewed for the book, some of whom will be immediately recognisable, the likes of Lorraine Hegesy, Alan Yento, and some who may, people may not have heard so much as like Rupert Gavin, Mike Phillips and David Thompson. So maybe tell us uh, who were your personal highlights in terms of who you got hold of to talk to and did any surprise you that you managed to get? Yeah, well, I mean, I was surprised to get almost everyone, really, because I'm a complete nobody in the, the world of Doctor Who and in the world of, you know, writing about television. So, I mean, for all they knew, I could have been just a mad fan with a crayon, you know, but it was amazing how everyone was very generous with their time and, and very willing to speak to me. Um, I, was, yeah, I mean, the, the sort of the big names that you like you mentioned, like Lorraine Hegesy and Alan Yentob and... Jane Tranter, Julie Gardner, Mal Young, all these people. And it was, yeah, I mean, I was, I was just, basically, it was just a matter of writing to people. I got in touch with some of them on social media, some of them via companies that they now work for. Uh, some people in the book just by sort of couldn't find direct details for them, but I found out who they worked for and sort of guessed the format of their company email addresses and tried emailing them that way. And uh, yeah, all, all, um, I was amazed. Yeah, I was, I was, the big names that you mentioned, people like, uh, Lorraine Hegesy and uh, and Mal Young and Jane Tranter. That they, I was really pleased because I knew that if I got at least one or two of them, it was a viable book. Those, those kind of big players. But it was also quite nice to get some of those people that fandom didn't really know about. People like Lorraine Hegesy's number two at BBC One, a lady called Helen O'Reilly, uh, who was her her uh, channel executive was the title. She's basically the sort of deputy controller of BBC One. And Lorraine mentioned just sort of off the cuff that 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 um, she said, oh yeah, my, my channel executive at the time, Helen O'Reilly, was a big Doctor Who fan, and she had a TARDIS on her desk. Actually, Lorraine was misremembering; it was a Dalek that uh, Helen had on her desk. And I, I looked into that because she wasn't someone I don't think fandom really knew about, Helen O'Reilly. But uh, it did turn out that around the 50th anniversary, she'd written an article for the Irish Times about being a fan and how how she'd played a part in Lorraine bringing the show back. And I was able to get hold of her. And um, at first she said, oh, Lorraine's the one you really want to talk to. You don't want to ask. Well, I've spoken to Lorraine and she mentioned about, about your role in things. Would you mind speaking to me? And she did. And, and she was very insightful and, and, and very funny as well. I know some people have found that um, Helen O'Reilly's bits are uh, perhaps some, some of the funniest bits of the book. She, she speaks very well about... Uh, uh, she did this. She had this little toy Dalek on her desk, and she would just press it to make its the noises every time Lorraine Hegesy would come into the office in the morning. And she tells this story that eventually Lorraine got so wound up by this that she came storming over and said, "All right, all right, look into who has the rights to the dog. I'm not having you press that button at me on the Dalek anymore." So people like that who we didn't really know about that was good. And also, I was I was very pleased to get Jane Tranter and Julie Gardner. Very lucky as well, I think, because if I'd been writing this book, maybe or approaching people for interviews a year later. I think they may be, because they were then becoming involved again with Bad Wolf becoming the new producers of Doctor Who, maybe they would have felt as they were now involved again. They perhaps wouldn't have been able to speak to me. But this was obviously just before all that happened, so they were willing to speak to me, which is nice. Mel Young I was particularly pleased to get, because Mel Young doesn't really give a... He hasn't really spoken too much about Doctor Who down the years. Uh, I, when I was approaching him, I, I approached him on social media and he gave me an email address to contact him with and we exchanged a few emails and he said how he didn't really like talking about Doctor Who because he prefers to let it, that first series speak for itself, to stand on its own. He like, likes the work to speak for itself. But eventually he agreed. He said, he said okay, we'll, we'll do an interview. And we actually, we ended up speaking for 
probably longer than any of the other interviews I spoke to. I think we had a Zoom chat for about two hours and uh, spoke about all sorts of things. And so it was, it was nice that he felt he, he was willing to speak to me and, and happy to speak. And people like Patrick Spence as well, who'd been Mal Young's number two running drama series. And Patrick was, as I think some, a lot of people know, and as I wrote about for DWM in the most recent issue, he was the, the first person that Russell T Davis had a meeting with at the BBC about Doctor Who. Uh, so people like that. So it was, I guess, the two sort of groups that I was really most pleased with were the, were the, the really big names who uh, like Lorraine Hegarty, Mal Young, Jane Tranter, all of those uh, who meant it could be, you know, could really work as a book. And also the people who we hadn't really heard from before about it. People like Helen O'Reilly and, and Patrick Spence and so forth. So that's a very long rambling answer. I apologise. Not at all. Every single word counts when you're on a podcast and they're always useful. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the fact all the, the stuff regarding BBC films and it's quite mm. hard to believe, you know, just how, you know, sort of like this, sort of, that was their sort of like pretty much BBC films were taking precedence over BBC television and were just not particularly doing anything with Doctor Who. It's, it seems quite bizarre, obviously, in this world in which we live now where Doctor Who is the household name again and it's not the embarrassment that it was once upon a time or so people regarded it as, not by us fans, of course. Yes. And that must have been really fascinating for you, just sort of getting to the core of that discussion. Well, I, mean, I, don't, I, I don't know if I did get to the core of it. Hopefully I did. I mean, there is a certain amount of disagreement. I mean, David Thompson, who was running BBC Films through those years and did very successfully for 10 years, he sort of gives the impression that it was more led by BBC Worldwide, the commercial arm. He sort of gives the impression that BBC Films sort of went along with the film idea. He was happy to go along with it, but it was more driven by the commercial arm BBC Worldwide, Rupert Gavin and particularly Mike Phillips, who uh, was very, very into the idea of making Doctor Who film. And um, I don't know if they necessarily didn't do anything with it, but but what they were doing, it was one of those things that was just in sort of development hell, really. Uh, they had these negotiations with Universal Films. They had Ed Solomon, uh, the famous scriptwriter from Bill and Ted and Men in Black and so forth. He'd come up with a pitch idea for them. I don't know if he ever came up with the full story. I get the sense from what Mike Phillips says that he only ever really came up with this sort of pre-titles idea of this couple on a hillside or beach and then a sort of older Dr Anthony Hopkins type figure runs up to them and says they, they must get married otherwise um, you know the whole future of the human race will be in jeopardy that was Ed Solomon's kind of pitch for the film quite back to the future-ish uh, which Mike Phillips specifically mentions he says that Ed Solomon had said you know um, uh, back, to, back to the future's real hook that they felt they, they could they could hang it on to sell it to American studios and I get the impression that certainly it seems that I mean Worldwide denied Rupert Gavin who was running Worldwide at the time he denies as you'll have read in the book that they were ever in any position to to you know that they ever had any control over Doctor Who or that they were ever in any position to stop television doing Doctor Who but everyone on the television side Alan Yentob Brian Hegarty Jane Tranter Mel Young they're all very clear that certainly it was their understanding that Worldwide was stopping them from doing anything with it on television. So there is a disagreement on that between the people who worked at Worldwide and the people who worked at television. Whether we will ever find out the absolute truth of that, I guess, might depend on if and when that correspondence becomes available, maybe one day in decades to come from the BBC Written Archive Centre. I think it's too recent to be accessible at the moment, but maybe one day the future... Andrew Pixley's and Richard Bignall's and David J. Howes will be able to, to to look into all those emails if they indeed go to the BBC Written Archive Centre and, and unpick what the truth of all that was. But certainly um, the television people say worldwide were stopping it being made for television, but the worldwide people say, no, we didn't. So you have to sort of pick whose, whose account you find uh, the most believable on that, really. It must have been fascinating for you deciding what to use and what not to use because... I know having written Big Finish Companion Volume 2, there was just so much in there that I could have put in, but the physical limitations of a book kind of uh, frustrate you and almost like rein you in when you could put in so much more. 
Yeah, it was. I, I was kind of fortunate on that, really. There, there wasn't too much that I mean, because it's quite quite a fanish niche book. Obviously, you know, this isn't going to be a mass market book in Waterstone, so you knew that you could be fairly um, granular with the detail. But yeah, there, there wasn't too much in there that. I felt I couldn't put in. There, there was certain stuff that one interviewee said to me about, you know, the personal lives of certain people in BBC drama at the time. And, and they said to me, oh, that's off the record, obviously. But it wasn't the sort of stuff that I would put because I didn't want it to be like a kind of, um, you know, muckraking type book. You know, I wanted to, to try and uh, tell the truth and tell what had, had factually happened. But I wasn't trying to, you know, do a book that was deliberately trying to dig dirt or something i mean there's a lot in there about the problems the bbc faced in the late 90s particularly the drama department i mean i think it's widely acknowledged and was widely acknowledged in the industry at the time when you read the reports from media guardian or broadcast magazine at the time that bbc drama in the late 90s was in an absolute state it was a complete basket case which i think the sort of first couple of chapters of the book do outline and explain so obviously i was explaining the issues that were faced but um yeah, I mean, I said to I said to Julie Gardner when I spoke to her, I I, I began the interview and I said to her, um, uh, now the book I'm writing it just goes up to the recommissioning, so you know I'm not going to. I wanted to reassure you, I'm not going to ask you about uh, Christopher Eccleston or or exploding sofas or anything like that. And she just laughed and said, oh, I'll answer anything. She said, so maybe I should have taken her up on that. I don't know. <laughs> one thing I was told by one of the people, which I could have put in because uh, while I was writing it, this particular person, I think talked about it everywhere oh no i actually talked about it before but anyway um one person said to me um uh don't put that you heard this from me uh or or if you hear it from someone else you can put that i've said it but um we actually did offer the part to alan cumming first but uh but uh, he he wasn't available to do it and of course alan cumming has now gone around everywhere saying oh yes they asked it to me but i found out i'd have to live in wales so uh, i did decide i didn't want to <laughs> oh i like that that's good yeah but he'd, he'd, he'd been interesting casting actually and he's a big old fan. He's using some of the Bill Bag stuff back. Yeah, then. he did. Uh, Arizona Solution was one of his earliest bits of work, and then... yeah, and there was that weird BBC South thing around the time the show was recommissioned. But I'm yeah, not quite sure Bill exactly Bags what did, was yeah. going on there. And then next thing you know, he was uh, in Goldeneye. Yes, yeah. that was the next time I saw him. Very strange. But that was all a bit, um, that sort of casting, because the story I wanted to tell, because we, we put the strap line on the front of the book, Stuart Manning, the publisher, felt we, we adjusted it after it was first announced, because I think some people thought it was going to tell the story of the production of Series 1 as well, which I thought had kind of been done, really. I, I thought that this, telling the story of the production of the show, I think it had been done very well by lots of people in lots of places, but I, this, that was this, this in-between period from the aftermath of the TV movie to, to the point where it was recommissioned. I felt that wasn't really done so much, and in the story, in the sources about the uh, the making of the 2005 series, it's kind of dealt with, you know, quite early on, quite briefly. And there were there were all sorts of, as I say, interviews and articles. I mean, there was Kevin Scott's great series of articles, The Way Back from 2013 in T Magazine, and there's various other bits and pieces. But I didn't feel there was, there was a, something that brought all the strands of the story together and told them in one narrative. And that's what I wanted to do with this. If that doesn't sound too pretentious, not at all. No, it makes complete sense, and it does. It very much does what it says on the tin and I particularly like the fact that you've got you know what was going on with well it's not obviously not the major thrust but you're acknowledging the things that were going on with uh, Steve Cole and such likes keeping Doctor Who alive commercially for worldwide and again that was interesting just to just to keep everything in context to show that things were bubbling along quite nicely yeah, I wanted to give, the, as I say, that I mean, people have written, you know, lots about the story of BBC books and that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, I wanted to give the, that overall sort of impression of what was happening in the Doctor Who 
world at that time. I guess there's kind of two elements to it, isn't there? There's telling the story of what was going on in, in Doctor Who in those years it was off air, but also giving people that wider context of what was happening in the BBC. Because I think you find uh, in a lot of the Doctor Who sources, they don't really go into changes that were taking place in the BBC during those years, which I felt was very important to the background and context of it all. And similarly, in the sources that talk about the BBC, uh, if you're interested in the BBC in that era, there's a wonderful book, which was a great source uh, for me in this, which I, I, I mentioned in the, in the text a few times and in the, in the references, a book called Uncertain Vision by Georgina Bourne. She was an academic uh, sociologist I think and she was actually embedded with the BBC drama department in the late 90s doing like a study of it to write this book And that, but, but sources like that they're not really interested in what effect the changes in BBC drama at that time then had on Doctor Who eventually coming back so I wanted to write something that gave the background and context of the BBC at that time and explained how that then tied in with what eventually happened with, with Doctor Who coming back because I felt that a lot of the Doctor Who sources as I say didn't often give that, that wider background and context yeah, because I think that's something that, as Doctor Who fans, there's often a general perception of they're only interested in Doctor Who without putting it in the context of everything else mm. that's going on. For example, the fact that you know the setting up of Holby City to run alongside Casualty and these sorts of things were, were taking place. But as you say, there was a, a hell of a lot more going on that perhaps people weren't aware of. Well, we saw it recently, didn't we, when um, when it was announced that Bad Wolf were going to become the, the producers of the first... In, well apart from the TV movie I guess the first ever independent producers of Doctor Who and a lot of people were a bit confused by this didn't really understand it wanted to you know explain what's going on and, and I guess most people didn't really realise that the vast majority of drama they see on the BBC is now made by independent companies I think the BBC makes um, makes the whole being casually not Holby for much longer and EastEnders and Silent Witness and River City they probably make as well in Scotland but apart from that and maybe some of the Welsh dramas uh, the BBC doesn't make a huge amount of drama itself anymore um, BBC Studios obviously now being the production company that they own and most drama you see on BBC One will be made by an independent production company so it's not something particularly unusual or different or scary that Doctor Who is now going to be made by an outside company but because I think a lot of fans I, I'm sorry if this makes me sound arrogant as if I understand the BBC and you don't uh, <laughs> as if I'm explaining from on high but I, I think a lot of fans didn't really realise because most people don't realise most viewers no, no viewers pay attention to an end board on a TV show no one knows you know the difference between independent production in an in-house production no one cares why would you but I think most people didn't realise that most drama isn't made by the BBC now so the fact that's happening to Doctor Who people obviously thought that was un- it go everything goes through I think Russell's called it before the Doctor Who microscope that we don't realise that these things happen with all other dramas and, 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 we, and we focus just on, on what's going on with Doctor Who yeah of course once you'd got all this written how long did it take to bring it all together to you have, till we have you know, pretty much the, the basic manuscript that went off to Ten Acre yeah, it was it was reasonably quick, really. I mean, I um I I had to wait a bit just for one or two um, administrative things, but uh, yeah, it, it was all kind of done uh, in, a, in in a few months. As I say, it was, it was, there was a chunk done in 2015-16, and then it went back to it in 2020. And I guess it, it took it took a few months through 2020 to get it all into shape, but it was pretty much ready by the beginning of of 2021. And I then had to had to wait a bit for various boring uh, admin reasons, which I won't well, I won't, uh, I won't bore you with. But uh, yeah, it was all it was. It felt quite quick. Yeah. How did you find Stuart Manning as your publisher? Did you go around various Doctor Who type publishers, or was he somebody you went to pretty early on and clicked with? 
No, I was very, very fortunate. What happened was, uh, there's someone I'm sure you'll be familiar with, Graham Kibblewhite, who uh, uh, writes a great deal for Doctor Who magazine, but also uh, is, a, is a full-time TV journalist, writes about television for all sorts of publications. And I'd got in touch with him back in 2016 when I was first having a go at the book because I knew he was a TV journalist and I followed him on Twitter and I was trying to pin down uh, the date of a particular event and I thought he might know or he might know someone who knew. And uh, so I got in touch with him about that and we corresponded a little about the book and, and he thought it was a really interesting idea and he's very nice about it. And then four years later in 2020 when I was going back to it for the second time and trying to get it done properly because he'd said to me, oh, if you ever do have a proper go at it and, and need some help maybe chasing up some, some interviewees, I might be able to help put you in touch with some people. So I got in touch with Graham and he very kindly was able to put me in touch with, with some of the interviewees, which was very nice of him. Then a little while after that, he dropped me a, a note uh, saying, oh, uh, I'm good friends with Stuart Manning, who runs 10 Acre. And I was talking to him about your book and he felt it, was, it sounded a really interesting idea and he'd love to see the draft when you finished it. So as soon as I was able, I, I dropped Stuart an email saying, oh, Graham Kibble White has said you might be interested in seeing the book. And uh, he said, yes send it over to me that was on a friday evening when we had that little email exchange and then two days later on the sunday morning stuart sent me an email saying uh oh, i opened up your, your the, the pdf yesterday to have a little look through your book and i ended up reading the whole thing and i think it's really good and i'd love to publish it and it was like wow it's like i got the golden ticket to the chocolate factory you know it was brilliant it was because ever since i was tight ever since i can remember the only thing I've ever wanted to be as a writer, you know, the same way that some small children want to be uh, an astronaut or a Formula One racing driver or a cowboy or something. I wanted to be a writer and I always have been. Sadly, I don't seem to be much good at writing fiction, so I keep butting my head against the wall with that. But, but uh, to actually have a publisher say they wanted to publish a book by me. Uh, it was it was amazing and it was it was brilliant. I did have a book published a few years ago about a radio program I make. That didn't feel as if it sort of counted really. But uh, but to actually have a, a, a proper book come out from a, a proper publisher, it, it, it was brilliant. And um, a Ten Acre, I was really keen, was pleased to go with Ten Acre because I know you should never judge a book by its cover. But when you look at the books they put out before, they look like proper books. Whereas with some small press publishers, particularly small press publishers in the science fiction world, the covers can look a bit amateur and a bit fanish, you know. Whereas one of the things Stuart said to me was, I like our books to look like something you would pick up in Waterstones, uh, which I think the Ten Acre ones really do. One thing, when we were discussing the cover, he said one thing he didn't want. He said, I don't want any time vortex swirls that make it look like it it's wants to be a Doctor Who novel, you know. And, and so it was Stuart who came up with the cover idea and he got uh, a wonderful artist called Andrew Wharton to CG the sort of model kit parts for us for the cover. But uh, I, I, I have no artistic ability or conception whatsoever, so um, I'm very pleased that Stuart can do all that stuff and, and came up with that, that brilliant idea for the cover. It's fabulous. I was just about to mention it. And I think it's such a distinct colour scheme as well with that light blue and orange. And it does give it sort of, it grabs the eye because it's just that, that colour combo that works, that absolutely works. Yeah, Stuart's brilliant with all that. So, I mean, obviously, Pete, I think a lot of people know him from the, um, uh, the sort of movie poster um, uh, uh, designs he did for some of the episodes. I think it was during the Capaldi series, wasn't it, that um, were very popular online. I think they came out through the Radio Times, maybe. And uh, a lot of people know, know him for his work through that, but he's done all kinds of design work for, for various people. So for those who haven't got a copy yet, where can they purchase it? Well, the easiest thing is to go to the Ten Acre Films website at uh, tenacrefilms.bigcartel.com. Also, I mean, they do ship all over the world. Obviously, in certain parts of the world, um, 
postage is terrible at the moment, which is something we don't have any control over, sadly. I know that Huena, the big um, distributors of Doctor Who merchandise in North America, they do have some copies. They sold out the first uh, batch they had, but they have had another batch now. So I think if you're in the US or Canada, if you search for Huena, and they've got some that they they distribute locally in North America. But um, uh, outside of that, the best thing to do is to go to yeah, um, tenacrefilms.bigcartel.com, and you can buy a copy directly there. Fabulous, because I can personally recommend it. I I love my Doctor Who factual books, as I, I do like to know sort of what's going on. And I, I thought, I know this period quite well, but I think hearing the interviewees speak firsthand with the wonder of hindsight, it's great to be able to put everything into context and how they've contextualised it in terms of you know, where it fits in their career and what they were doing. And I think it's, it's just a top-notch read. Hugely recommend it. Well, a proper page turner. Well, that's very kind of you. Thank you very much. I, 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 as I say, I, I wrote it because I wanted to read it, and it's been hugely flattering uh, to see that other people have wanted to read it too, and I, I'm very grateful to everyone who's bought a copy. Thank you. And it gets the official Power of Three recommendation. Not that we've ever given it before, but it's getting it now. So yes, listeners, go out and buy a copy. Well, I'm very flattered to be the first to get that official recommendation. Thank you. And of course, if anybody wants to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you, Paul? Oh, well, yeah, if, if you want to. I don't know if I have any particularly great insights, but I'm at the underscore Questmaster, which is a ridiculous name for uh, the presenter of a radio programme I work on. I, I, I produce a sort of treasure hunt type radio programme. And many years ago, the original presenter of that called me the Questmaster on that. So that's now my Twitter handle, at the underscore Questmaster. We all have interesting origins. I'm at Finished Zine, and that's because I used to do a big finished fanzine called The Finished Product and finished product wouldn't fit, so I just went with finished zine. And then, of course, I've since sort of become editor of Vortex, so it sort of becomes like the official Big Finish magazine. So, again, so it, yeah. it kind of fits in there as well. So, yeah, it, it all works. It all works out. Wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey, one way or yeah. another. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, Paul, it's been absolutely amazing to chat with you, and thank you so much for your time. No, thank you very much indeed. Huge thanks to Paul for his time. And he's, of course, just given you the link there in which to order a copy, price 12 99 for the book, plus you pay postage as well. Talking of all things online, remember to follow us on social media at Power of 3 Pod, that's the number three. Or if you want to follow me, as I said earlier, you can find me on Twitter at FinishedZine, F-I-N-I-S-H-E-D-Z-I-N-E, or Z-I-N-E, if you're listening in America. I've got a busy few days coming up as a host of episodes for the next few weeks are about to be recorded, so the power of three keeps soldiering on. And of course, Pieces of Eighth, my other podcast, which is dedicated to the worlds of the Eighth Doctor, returns tomorrow, so you can find our episode with the composer of the TV movie, John Sponsler, and that drops on Friday. So, since there's nobody here to ask me, Kenny, what are we going to play out with today? Well me, since the long game covers that period in the wilderness years and fans were just waiting for news of the return of Doctor Who, I've picked a track from Madonna's 1992 album Erotica, which did come from the wilderness years but just the other side of the TV movie. And that track is waiting. But we won't keep you waiting for nine years for our next episode like the gap between the TV movie and Rose. We'll be back next week. Bye bye Duggan! Well, I know from experience that if you have to ask for something more than once or twice, it wasn't yours in the first place. And that's hard to accept when you love someone and you're led to.
to believe in their moment of need that they want what you want, but they don't. 